2: it does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter it's very rare to hear the chief economist of the bank of england being so frank about brexit i think
3: that what's more problematic for policy in the uk is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture
4: Stephen, i would like to have a small rant oh just a small one that's a relief
5: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepker. I'm Lizzie Burden.
4: And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Um, I have to say, I didn't get up to much this weekend, but I think if I were to scan the internet, the probably words that would stand out would be uh, king, arrests, sword and penny mordant. Did I miss anything? <laughs>
2: triceps. Penny's triceps.
4: Triceps. Well, same to you. Um, <laughs> this Look at... It it seems to have all gone off very well.
5: Yes, millions watched. Uh, Yeah, I followed it throughout the weekend, of course. The service at Westminster Abbey, the golden carriage, the dresses, the BBC coverage. I think what I pull out, though, of the three days, the volunteering, the street parties and bunting, it's pomp and ceremony amidst the cost of living crisis. It's the storied history and yet the reckoning with empire. And I think one word sticks in my mind, duality. You've got kind of the renewal of the crown and yet with the oldest person to come to the throne ever. And it's the tension, I think, in modern Britain that exists between the very religious service that we saw on Saturday and yet largely, you know, not very religious British population. Mm. I think there are real tensions also uh, to do with the legacy that it is attached to the crown and yet how that crown is taken forward. But I
2: do think that there's a way of handling that duality. You heard from Wes Streeting of the Labour Party on the Sunday shows on Laura Koonsberg's programme mm. on the BBC, and he said "It's you don't need to be defensive about Britain's imperial past. You just need to accept it and be open about it in a matter-of-fact way.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And... Yeah, there are are so many tensions, though. I mean, for example, Prince William talked about, you know, for all the celebrations being magnificent at the heart of the pageantry as a simple message, service. And yet again, that might clash with the kind of opulence, actually, of the military parade, of the golden carriage and so on. So I think there are many kind of tensions here.
4: Was it not the big shrug that everyone sort of (laughs) expected it to be? I feel like there was a certain part that, that people were expecting it to be nothing, but actually in the end sort of talked of nothing else
5: yeah and i think it is still it is still hugely important i think that's yes there are generational splits and absolutely younger people were less interested, I think, than than older generations maybe. But actually, you're right. I think
2: people it was did it focus was compelling it. in the it end. I think. I think
4: anyone that sort of caught any part of it was sort of drawn in, even if it was just Penny Mordant carrying a heavy sword.
2: Well, there were moments when you wondered whether King Charles himself was getting a bit bored. Did you see the lip reading of him in the carriage? <laughs> no. Looking grumpy, perhaps complaining <laughs> be, that the the onlookers were getting bored because it was going on too long.
4: I, I mean, to be fair, as someone who naturally looks either bored or angry, <laughs> I have sympathy with the fact that perhaps that might be a, just a default position
2: resting board face
4: exactly thank you for cleaning that up and me not saying the original expression uh, which i think is helpful
5: uh in terms though also amidst sort of this it did seem like something of a of a pause. Yes, there is obviously politics involved in in um, Charles being crowned there, and he's the head of state. But I think there was also a pause because the local election results mm. were so poor for the Conservative Party. And again, I'll, I'll point to this other duality: Rishi Sunak in Westminster giving a reading, obviously as Prime Minister. But then, as you say, Penny Mordaunt being hotly tipped as a potential future leader. So there's that kind of political tension of which MPs also attended and, and you know which were kept out for kind of numbers reasons. I think there's there are lots of tensions there too.
4: Yeah, certainly is. Well, look, let's, let's turn to the local election results then. Rishi Tory Tories never expected success at the polling uh, last week, but the final result was worse than pollsters' bleakers, bleakest predictions, a loss of more than a 1,000 seats. Uh, it's now time for the post-mortem. Conservative MPs cannot seem to agree on the diagnosis of what went wrong. Well, for some analysis, we're joined now by Leonora Campbell, who's Bloomberg's UK government reporter on the Daily Readout newsletter, well worth a subscription. Uh, And also in a previous life was a special advisor to Rishi Sunak and to Boris Johnson. Leonora, welcome to the programme. Great to have you.
6: Thanks very much. Well, it's great to be here. The first of many. (laughs) (laughs) Look,
4: the Prime Minister's doubled down on his message that to win the general election, he needs to focus on delivering on his five priorities, including having inflation and growing the economy. Does that risk appearing a bit tone deaf. He hasn't changed that messaging since January despite this defeat.
6: Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, what comes out of the next few days and whether there's a dramatic shift um, of approach from Number 10 and Rishi Sunak. Uh, these have been extremely dire local elections for the Conservatives. Um, they lost a uh, thousand councillors, which was on the, much the worst end of what they were projecting and predicting. Um, and uh, the key thing is whether or not perhaps they Bowed some of the party, um, f- the calls to cut taxes, build more houses, build less houses, or whether or not they stick to their five priorities.
5: Yeah, on that housing point, um, it's pretty fascinating. Everybody wants more homes to be built. Some Tories say that Sunak's decision to scrap the requirement for local authorities to build, you know, the 300,000 uh, homes a year pledge means that he doesn't care about levelling up. Sunak's likely to add housing to his list potentially then? What, how does he handle this, the green belt issue?
6: Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting things here. I think first of all, you've seen a massive breakdown of party unity here. You've got one end of the party calling mm. for um, fewer houses to be built, people like Teresa Villiers, the NIMBY Uh, side of the party Not in my backyard Yeah exactly (laughs) and you've got um, others calling for more houses more growth Uh, The second thing is I think the reason why Sunak has picked his five priorities is because they're much more easy to show delivery on than something like housing You know how can you um, show proper delivery on people being able to get onto the housing ladder between now and 2024 Um, When you talk to internal party strategists some of the things that they're saying is that the the, the Tories will have to bring forward um, a big ticket on this in the manifesto, Um, whether people trust them or not is, is the question. Yeah, and it's even more difficult when you've got interest rates
2: projected to potentially hit 5% by September, that feeding into this housing crisis problem. I wonder, do you expect more from Labour on house building? It was the issue that Keir Starmer, of course, focused on at the PMQ's session the day before the polls opened.
6: Yeah, I think if I was sitting in Labour HQ right now, the one thing I'd want to do is to pin this uh, failure on house building um, onto the Tories and to say, look, they don't do the things that they promised. Um, and you can see a whole strategy uh, forming out of how, uh, you know, Tory broken promises. It's something we've seen from Keir Starmer before. And I think it's something that they could 100% major on in, in the way to the next election. Because it's almost infix, unfixable in time. Exactly.
4: Yeah. Uh,
5: the longer term issue, though, I mean, the reality other than the kind of politicking is, you know, this is a generational divide, a huge issue for younger voters. Uh, I mean, do we think that this is going to be a key general election issue uh, again, along with other kind of generational issues, childcare, for example?
6: It really is. But I think um, you know the next election probably will be won or lost on the economy, um, and I think that's why Number Ten uh, rightly has chosen to um, you know create uh, those like the big um, the big things that they want to focus on. Because that's what people care about at the end of the day. How much money will they feel they have in their pocket um, mm-hmm. as they approach the, their election, uh, that election, and where are we at with inflation?
2: But th- those have been the priorities since January, and yet they had this bruising defeat. Is it simply that people don't trust the Bank of England's predictions that? inflation will fall by the end of the year, or is it that they're seeing these headlines about double-digit inflation? When do you think people will get on board with the idea, the the prioritisation that Sunak has picked?
6: Yeah, I think there's a multitude of different things. Um, the first thing to say is that it's very difficult um, to um, create a direct read across from local elections to what that might mean in a general election. People are voting for all sorts of reasons in local elections, um, and it's and they're different to uh, what uh, to to a general election. Um, but also people. Um, we're reflecting in the polls that they're fed up of of 13 years of conservative governments now. That could be for all sorts of different reasons, COVID, parties, what the chaos that we saw under the Liz Truss era. Um, And so although um, part of it might be that people are feeling poor at the moment, um, it it, it is also a a lot of other things as well.
4: I mean, is this just a completely losing battle then for Rishi Sunak and his government to be fighting? They're looking at, you know, a, a really very pessimistic outlook from the local elections, but can can he now kind of turn things around and project the message that, he, that that's possible before a general election?
6: Well, I think what everyone agreed um, on following the local elections is that, first of all, it was a, a very bad night for the Tories and they are in serious electoral trouble. Um, but I think lots of other people said that although Labour claim this is a massive victory, actually um, they didn't reflect the sort of 20-point leads that I think we've been talking Mm. about this year. Um, It was actually quite an underwhelming night for them. Um, So although uh, the Tories are in serious trouble, there is still a small path to turning things around. And I think what we'll see over the next kind of few weeks and months is whether Sunak decides that the best Mm. thing to do is just to carry on with the plan and show deliverability on those um, five key pledges. Nobody's talking about
5: getting rid of Rishi Sunak, uh, which I think is perhaps a low bar versus low last year 3pm's in 12 months but uh, the idea of kind of Penny Mordaunt—is yes.
4: Penny I... back? Is this her big—is this her <laughs> <Yes>. big moment?
6: <laughs> she, well, she was looking spectacular, wasn't she? <laughs> her <laughs> headgear <laughs> is just something else. Um, and I think she said she had to do lots of press ups in preparation because it was eight pounds that sort. <gasps> um, but um, look, I think one thing that you've seen here is that uh, in Christmas we were talking about the local elections being a big marker for will Boris come back. Uh, no one thinks that's actually generally really likely now. Um, and I, I I don't think that Sunak's position is under threat um, at the moment from any challenges. I think most people in the party would, would agree that that would cause too much chaos um, and make the country, which is already annoyed with the Conservatives, even more annoyed.
4: OK, Leonora Campbell, thank you very much for all of that, our UK government reporter on the Daily Readout newsletter.
5: So one of the unusual things about the local elections was that it was the first in which voters were required to produce a valid photo ID or a voter authority certificate in order to cast their ballot. Joining us now to discuss that whole process is the chief executive of the Association of Electoral Administrators, Peter Stanion. The AEA represents around 2,000 electoral officials across the UK. So Peter, great person to have on the programme to um, sort of help us understand how the experience went in terms of um, the polls that were run across the country. This is what your members administer. How did the day go?
7: Uh, well, administratively, it went very well, uh, smoothly as could be expected. It was a massive change, a sea change, uh, with the requirements for the voter ID, photo ID to be shown in advance, but there will inevitably have been people turned away because they had the wrong ID or didn't bring some with them. But certainly, the general consensus is the system worked um, as smoothly as could be expected.
4: What was what did you hear from your members in terms of those experiences of people being turned away, or perhaps you know how how people understood the regulations when they did turn up to vote?
7: certainly i think in the majority of cases the the voters arriving at the stations came prepared with their photo id to hand and certainly i witnessed that myself in a couple of polling stations um and it was as smooth as 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 could could be expected only adding 10 15 seconds to the actual voting process however there were reported instances of there being some uh disgruntlement uh, where people were turned away Uh, and certainly we can understand the frustration but the volunteers and the polling stations had to deal with that in terms of the rules are now the rules and they had to turn people away because of wrong ID or no idea at all.
2: So, Peter, you say it went as smoothly as can be expected, but is there anything that you'd do differently in the future or uh, that other people could do better in the future?
7: It's too early to say as to, to how the whole process worked. That's been evaluated as we speak and we expect to hear that in the next month or so. Uh, but I think the real the real um, issue is the the fact that this was a local election with a a turnout of 35 40 percent across 230 local authorities in England. Um, when this rolls out at the next UK parliamentary general election across the whole uh, of the UK, uh, it will be a different ball game because turnout will be higher uh, and it will be actually for the first time some individuals, certainly in Scotland, for example having to roll it out live at a parliamentary so there's lots of things still to learn simply by the numbers who will come through uh, and the hope that the message is there that they actually understand they still need that ID for all those elections.
5: Was this policy necessary? Was there any evidence of either you know a large amount of voter fraud or an increasing amount of voter fraud that means that ID is required?
7: Well, the, the, the government brought it through as a manifesto commitment. Um there isn't evidence of there being widespread um uh prosecutions for for elect, for personation as it's known in polling stations. Uh but the decision was taken by the, the government and then passed through parliament for the change to the legislation to come in. So ultimately those in the polling stations and the AA members must deliver what the law actually says.
2: So is this an Americanisation of our voting system? Was it even necessary?
7: I can't really get into the the the, the why's and wherefores of whether it was necessary other than to say it was something that parliament voted through um to make that change. As I say the um the evidence of prosecutions is very low um but the 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 arguments put were very much about the perception of fraud, um, and now the system has been brought in and we rolled out a parliamentary elections as much as locals as we go forwards.
4: I hear your caution about what the next general election might look like. What needs to change between now and then, or what tweaks need to be made to the system before it can be rolled out for a, an election that's going to have a lot more voters?
7: Well, the, the, um, there's, a, there's a slight leeway, um, if a general election is called immediately, it won't, the, there won't be voter ID. It will only kick into force at a UK parliamentary general election from, I believe it's October onwards. So um, I think again, slightly too early to say because the evaluations need to be done. The stats need to be taken in from the various polling stations as to the effects of the, the impact of voter ID in the stations. And following on from that, it will then be determined whether changes are actually needed or whether it's simply a case of raising awareness of the need to bring that voter ID with you to stations for elections from here on.
5: There is a great deal of focus in democratic countries on, um, on voting, um, on influence, on the running of elections. Um, is the UK good at this in general? I mean, I'm sure that you will say that we are. Um, are there any further policy changes that might be on, on the way in terms of making sure that elections in, in you know, obviously a democratic country are well run?
7: You you tell the words out of my mouth. I think elections in the UK are run very, very well to very high standards under a great deal of pressure. I think the one big change that is needed is simplification. Um, it's fair to say that the existing legislation that we're working with was initially drafted in 1872 in the Ballot Act when secrecy of voting came in and has been morphed onto with various changes over the intervening years. Um, is it fit in terms of being... What you would draw up from scratch now? No, does it work? Yes, but it works in some cases despite the legislation. It's a very much a case of trying to deliver a system. It is fair, it is sound, it is actually accurate, but it's a creaking system as we go forwards that, that is crying out for simplification. So, so what needs to change then? Well, there are there are innumerable um, uh, forms of secondary primary legislation different election rules for different elections. It's really trying to bring it back to the modern modernizing legislation to make it, um, to keep it fit for purpose. It is fit for purpose now. It's just making sure that we can ensure that as things change, as um, expectations of voters change, the system can keep pace at the same time, allowing accessibility at the same time as ensuring uh, that the, the elections are mm. uh, quite rightly seen as being uh, free from fraud and things like that.
5: How far do you think we are from not having to go into a voting booth at all, but simply doing it electronically, uh, you know, over your phone or your computer? I mean, we have postal voting, obviously, but how far do you think we are from actually the the physicality of the vote disappearing?
7: At this moment in time, I think we're still quite a long way away from that. Um, There is no appetite. uh, in Parliament, as far as I can I can ascertain, to moving to um, different forms of voting, whether it be electronic, internet, etc. Um, that's despite the fact that on the electoral registration side, you can now register to vote online, you can we're very shortly sure be able to apply for a postal vote online. So, so technology is coming into elements of the electoral process, but the actual process of voting uh, still seems to be wedded. with a a stubby pencil and a piece of paper, which works and is a very safe way of doing it, but is it the most accessible form for for all electors? That's a question that that the decision makers need to consider as they go forwards.
4: Okay, Peter Stanion, the Chief Executive of the Association of Electoral Administrators. Thank you very much for joining us.
5: Okay, so let's change tack. Britain's manufacturers are calling for an independent investigation, a Royal Commission on Industrial Strategy, to try to end what they call the flip-flopping on UK policy and also to drive economic growth. This is Make UK, of course, that represents manufacturers. They've done a survey and they talk about a majority of companies believing that there has never been a long-term government vision for manufacturing in the country and they contrast that with other major economies including the us china and germany now we were talking to the make uk chief operating officer ben fletcher about this and why he thinks it's so important that there is this powerful independent investigation to give new recommendations
3: part of the argument here is is about the seriousness of manufacturing to the uk economy the significance of manufacturing to the uk economy and actually, the need to have a plan that transcends political boundaries, I think a royal commission is one of the few ways that we've got in the UK to oversee and and supplement uh, the parliamentary process in, in an effective way, but mm. achieve that kind of consensus. And and I think ultimately the vehicle is slightly less important than the than the ambition, which is to say. Uh, we haven't grown our manufacturing sector in the way they have in Germany, in the way that they're really focused on doing at the moment in the US. And one of those reasons is that we haven't had that long-term vision and, and this is a route way to get it.
5: This is a real damning indictment, frankly, of government policy for 20 years.
3: I think um, I think that actually underneath there's quite a lot of support for government policy. We, we had a very good industrial strategy uh, that was launched uh, at the end of 2017, early 2018 there's some really good things that came out of that. As an example, uh, what many people don't know is that we're one of the, the biggest uh, aviation manufacturers in the world, and one of the great things that came out of that industrial strategy was investment into firms, which mean we're now the best and the biggest producer of airplane wings anywhere in the world. And we've created mm-hmm. fantastic resources that, that, that build as we move to, to net zero and, and tackle that challenge incredibly lightweight, but incredibly strong wing, wings without metal. So there is some success. But the damning indictment is really that we haven't built on that success. We haven't uh, continued to invest in the way that we've done before. Uh, and many of the real uh, strategic benefits that came from that plan have dissipated. Uh, and I think uh, I think that's the really crucial issue. Even when we've had success, we haven't recognised it, we haven't lauded it. We haven't built that, in it, that confidence that allows firms to invest Uh, And we've chopped and changed so much that that those benefits uh, haven't been built upon.
4: When you look towards Germany and and its success, there are three things that would be very controversial in the UK if we were to introduce. Firstly, they have selective, essentially grammar school system where they send people down a different path at the age of 10, 11, 12. Secondly, they have quite amenable tax regime for people inheriting their companies where if you're dedicating a certain proportion of your revenue to uh, pay for employees personnel costs then your inheritance tax is reduced every year to the extent to the point that ultimately you will end up paying very little inheritance tax that's what companies say gives them a long-term perspective and lets them invest in the future and thirdly of course germany is still in the european union if you look at those three things is there are any of them feasible uh, for the uk if we're going to try to imitate some of germany's success
3: I don't think we're saying that any any model is something that we should uh, look to exactly replicate here. You know, there's some really interesting comparisons with the U.S. at the moment, where none of those things apply. Uh, and through the Inflation Reduction Act, they're making a really significant investment in bringing manufacturing back. Uh, one of the things I would say that the German model, uh, not necessarily through the question of of, uh, of making formal decisions or forcing anyone down that route, but one of the really interesting things about Germany. is a real focus and a real prize on technical skills as well as academic and vocational skills. And I think that 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 is an area that we could look to emulate quite a lot from Germany. The the, the fact that they invest in uh, their training centres, the fact that they invest in their schools, and the fact that children uh, are seen uh, and see themselves as careers in manufacturing as being equally valid as careers in services industries. And I think that the technical capability at all of the tiers of the German education system is something that we absolutely should look at. Now, we're not saying copy everyone's tax regime, copy everyone's investment plan. Uh, the American plan is incredibly ambitious, would be difficult for us to do uh, in exactly its same form at the moment. But mm. one of the things I think that is really important is that we look around the world and, and see which countries do it better than us. And And I think if you look at Germany, if you look at France, We've got a very, very long term sustained plan. If you look at America, Mm -hmm. you look at a number of places in the Far East, they've all got really clear plans and they've all got a real investment in skills and and a focus on what this is going to achieve over the next 10 years. And if you compare that to where we are now, Jeremy Hunt made some really positive steps forward in the budget last autumn, some, some clearly defined areas that he wants to invest in, but we really need to, to scale up from that and we need a huge amount more flesh on the bone in terms of detail.
5: Um, Okay. a a last thought then in terms of how welcome your um, drive is in the corridors of power, I suppose. How does Rishi Sunak's government uh, see this? Um, Because obviously the Royal Commission would have to be approved and organised by government. And indeed, what of the Labour Party? I mean, we have an election, general election, looming not that long away. And the polling is very positive for the Labour Party if they were to get in. um, Do you think this is something that would appeal to them?
3: Uh, we certainly hope that both parties look at it seriously and take it seriously. To, to directly address your question, um, as I said, you know, we've had some positive signs coming out of the Sunak government and, and Hunt's budget set out that that ambition. And, and we strongly welcome that. The opposition parties, Labour in particular, has said that the, an industrial strategy is critical and, and they would want to produce one and deliver one in government. What we're trying to do, I think, is to is to be a bit of a catalyst for all of that thinking. It's really critical that we get this right. Uh, we've learned some lessons from COVID, I think, about the impact if we don't have uh, a lot of domestic capability. We're seeing the focus on net zero. We're seeing the focus on uh, industrial growth in our big competitors. And at the moment, our plan isn't fully functional, isn't fully worked and isn't fully resourced. So what we see... Uh, is a receptive audience on both sides of the house. What really we want to do is to put a turbocharger underneath that thinking and get people to realise that Mm -hmm. this isn't something you can just talk about, you really have to do.
5: So that was Make UK's Chief Operating Officer, Ben Fletcher, speaking to me and to Alex Webb there on Bloomberg Radio. Look, um, I think this is so important. In fact, I think Make UK... um, gets across a really valid point, which is when you look at the chopping and changing of the government department in charge of industrial policy, when you look at the kind of different policy documents that have come out over the last 15 years, there has been a huge amount of churn. And why now? Why the importance of this now? Of course, it's the enormous amounts of money that the United States and the European Union are spending on their industrial strategies and Britain has got to try to step up so this is the manufacturers trying to do that.
2: I think it's a completely valid point given that the industrial strategies changed five times in the past 15 years the business department's mm. changed its name it's merged with trade as well but this is the same problem that there, there is with housing which is the other issue we were just speaking about yes. with, earlier uh, off the back of the local elections when you have to make long-term policy how do you do it unless you create another branch of government that is there beyond the life cycle of a short term parliament? Look
5: I do think though it also goes to the the great
2: battle perhaps that we are having
5: ideologically in the world between western democracies and more planned economies like China. You know can democracies bring in some elements
2: of a more planned economy for the success of their people? And indeed the idea of a royal commission is something that started I think in the 1960s and yeah. 70s or at least it was really broadly It was used much more then, before Margaret Thatcher came along and said, I'm not going to be as interventionist in my economic policy.
4: Mm, So interesting debate to watch. Well, let's turn back to the coronation now. The dust settled, of course, on the formal events. Uh, Some, though, considering what next for the monarchy in terms of the soft power that it has for Britain. Bloomberg's Eileen Bagbo reports. King Charles
0: III was crowned during a weekend of celebrations, and in protests in an event watched by millions. With many of the world's leaders present, it was a moment for British soft power, but also of reckoning with the past. Queen Elizabeth II was viewed by many as a personification of the UK's influence on the world stage. Described by some as Britain's greatest diplomatic assets, she met with leaders from across the globe and held a unique position as the head of the Commonwealth. But with a role built on the legacy of Britain's empire, does her passing signal the end of royal diplomacy and with it a UK edge?
8: I think there is value in that relationship uh, historically. But of course, history also has its its complications, given what we know about the history of colonialism uh, and empire from from the UK. So these issues are not entirely straightforward.
0: That's Sir Simon James Fraser, a former British diplomat who served as the permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office. He says there is a place for the new king in the diplomatic sphere, but the path forward is not without its challenges.
8: The important thing is for the new king to establish, if you like, his identity as the king of the UK and therefore as the head of the Commonwealth. And that will be very important because, to be absolutely clear, a lot of this in the past was associated with the personality and the personal history of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. So he's got to establish his own position and that will influence how other people, how other countries, the realms and other members of the Commonwealth think about this relationship in the future
0: but his view is far removed from how many around the world see the monarch and the Commonwealth as symbols of the British Empire's darkest moments. Historian Dr Imabong Imorin is the author of Empire Without End. She says it's hard to separate royalty from the history of empire. There are many who would say that there really is very little value um, in the monarchy, given the monarchy's own links directly to uh, slavery, to colonialism, things that have really decimated the Caribbean over centuries. So I think this is also fueling these different attitudes towards the monarchy. For his part, the new king has shown remorse for Britain's role in the slave trade, signalling his support for research into the royal family's links to it.
7: I cannot describe the depths of my personal sorrow at the suffering of so many as I continue to deepen my own understanding of slavery's enduring impact.
0: Perhaps King Charles's recent success in Germany is a taste of what is to come, widely praised for his Bundestag speech, partly in fluent German, and no, diplomatic no, outreach post-Brexit. Funny.
7: Danke, danke ich Ihnen von ganzem Herzen für die außerordentliche Teilnahme der Menschen in Deutschland.
0: So, there are positive signs. But, with referendums on the monarchy's role planned in the Commonwealth nations, including Antigua and the Bahamas, King Charles will need to offer more of this careful diplomacy to cement the new Carolean era. In London, I'm Eileen Bagbo, Bloomberg Radio.
5: So Eileen Bagbo there bringing us a special report on the coronation uh, and perhaps some of the challenges that actually King Charles has already hinted at you know, he might be interested in getting involved in.
4: Yeah, really great to hear those perspectives after the weekend that we have had. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen.
5: This episode was produced by James Walcock. Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepker. I'm Lizzie Burden. And
4: I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.